Well, good morning, CCSC. Good morning. If you guys have your Bibles, we'll go to straight to the text in Matthew chapter 19. And as you turn there, just to let you know, it is an honor to join you in this Sunday morning uh, at Gospel Life Mission Church. We consider CCSC a dear friend of ours. We consider them a we consider you guys a church that we would love to partner with, and we have partnered with. We always ask Pastor Harold to guest speak for us, and so we definitely love what CCSC is doing. And I love the fact that you guys are here in Placentia. I live five minutes from here, so this is a local church for me to visit if I'm ever on a break or if I ever have a Sunday off. And so thank you guys for having me. Uh, we're going to be looking again at Matthew chapter 19, and it's going to be starting from verse 3, and we're going to go all the way to verse 6, and then we're going to... Uh, jump over to verse 10 to 12. Verse 3, it writes, And the Pharisees came up to him, meaning Jesus, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then down to verse 10. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is God's word. This passage that we just read is probably now becoming one of the most controversial teachings that Jesus has ever given. If there was a sermon series about Jesus' hard sayings, we probably today might want to include this passage here. And for those of us who are older, we may not know why, because we hear this passage a lot, and we think this is a great marriage passage. But you see, today it's different. Today this passage is actually very challenging to modern society, because Jesus is saying something here that you're not supposed to say today. He is saying something today, or he's saying something in this passage that we today should not be saying at all. What Jesus is saying and what he is doing is he is talking and describing a standard of marriage. Jesus is creating for us a sexual ethic, telling us that this is marriage, these are the parties that are involved, and this is the purpose of what marriage is. And this sexual ethic that Jesus is creating for us as followers of Christ, we're supposed to absorb it, we're supposed to meditate upon it, and we're supposed to be able to communicate this to the world. See, but in this day and age, this is actually very challenging to do, extremely challenging to do. It's a difficult passage, and yet we're going to be looking at it together today. And the reason why we're looking at this difficult passage is because we're trying to answer a difficult question. If you've been joining CCSC for the past few weeks, there's been a series that, we, that the church has been going through called FAQ, where it's asking different, answering different questions that members of the church have been asking the question that we're tackling today is the question of same-sex same practices and homosexual, homosexual marriage. This is a very sensitive topic. It's a very difficult topic. And yet, 
For all of us, it's for sure a relevant topic. We see this all the time in social media. We see it all the time in, uh, in the news. It's all over uh, policies and when we vote. But I know especially for some of us, it's not just a political or social issue. This is very personal. We know people, family, friends, coworkers, who identify themselves as gay or who experience same-sex attraction, or we ourselves are experiencing same-sex attraction. And as here at this church, we're trying to sort through how do I make sense of this? How do I understand this? And especially, how do I reconcile this with the Christian faith? I think the church, we at times struggle knowing what to say about this. In the old days, fire, brimstone, speaking about this. Sometimes then it swung the other way where we don't, we're kind of more very soft and gentle and we have a hard time knowing how to really say anything. So oftentimes the church is quiet. Oftentimes we're quiet. We don't know exactly how to communicate what we believe. And so that's why I am so thankful that CCSC wants to address this topic. I am so thankful that we have members here who actually would submit a question, be bold enough to submit a question and ask, what does the church really believe about this? I am very grateful, and I'm very grateful that I get to introduce this topic to us as a church. And I hope that the conversation does not end here. I hope that I could just introduce this topic to us, and that we as a church, we can actually continue the conversation as a community together. So, the question that I've been asked to address and to answer is, how do we minister to those who promote a homosexual, homosexual practice in same-sex marriage? How do we as a church, how do we as Christians minister to people who promote homosexual practices and who, have, and who promote same-sex marriage? What I want to do is I want to answer this question in four ways. First, in, the way, in answering how do we minister, I think we need to do four things. One is we need to understand this topic accurately. We need to understand what we're talking about. Second, we need to respond faithfully. We have to be faithful in our response. Third, but we also need to minister graciously. We need to minister graciously in this topic. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, we need to share Christ ultimately. We need to share Christ. So understand this accurately, respond faithfully, minister graciously, share Christ ultimately. First, we need to understand this accurately. When we talk about homosexual practices and same-sex marriage, do we know what we're talking about? Oftentimes, when I talk to Christians and I ask them about the subject, usually they get awkward and they don't know how to talk about it. But the few that do, that actually do engage with me in the conversation like this, oftentimes a lot of the information that I realize we get is from the media or from TV or from newspapers, and we get stuff that is often not really reality or at the ground level, but it's, it's more of, a, it's more of a, a caricature or things that are misinformation that we hear. And so when we engage and talk about with people, we, we miss each other because we're, we're often not talking about the same things or we're not as informed as we ought to be. And so I, I think it would be helpful if we could talk about a couple of things that we should know about this topic before we consider ministering to others about it. A couple of things that we as a church should be aware of before we go outside the church and try to minister to people. The first thing we should know is this. We don't know what exactly causes people to experience same-sex attraction. There's proposed theories that people throw out on, oh, why, why is this even an issue? Why do people even experience this? There are proposed theories that try to make sense of why this happens, but every single theory has a real problem. Some people say, usually the conservatives, you know why people experience same-sex attraction? It's a choice. 
They choose to do so. But if you actually talk to somebody who actually experiences same-sex attraction, they'll tell you, I never remembered making a choice like that. And why on earth would I even make a choice like that? Because living a, living, coming out as gay, coming out sharing that you experience this, that is not an easy life for a lot of people. It's, a, lot of, a lot of hardship transpires as a result of that. So why would anyone ever choose this? So that's where maybe more moderate Christians would say, oh, it's, it's because of its nurture, the way you were raised, perhaps, you know, rough family background, what happened with your parents, or, you know, maybe a sexual encounter that happened in high school. But again, if you talk to anybody who experienced the same-sex attraction, a lot of them grew up in wonderful homes. A lot of them have loving parents. A lot of them have loving relationships. And yet, for some reason, they still experience this. And thirdly, another theory that's proposed is, well, people are just born this way. People are just genetically predisposed to be attracted to the same sex. But unfortunately, there isn't any verifiable studies that prove that. If there were, you would have heard of it by now. But there hasn't been. And so we must conclude that when it comes to where, where did this come from, why is this even here, why is this even a, a thing that we're talking about, we have to say we don't know. We have to profess humility and approach it with humility. That's the first thing we ought to know. Second thing we ought to know, when we talk about this subject of same-sex practices, same-sex marriage, it's helpful to distinguish it in three different ways. We often collapse it as one thing, as one type of, as homosexuality or gay or same-sex. It's, it's actually, we should, it's better to nuance it and approach it in three different ways, three categories on how to approach this. And the three are attraction, orientation, and identity. Attraction, same-sex attraction, or in short, SSA, this is when a person experiences feelings, sexual feelings for somebody of the same sex. This is not, it doesn't happen all the time, just a feeling, the moment that occurs. And people can identify themselves as heterosexual, but yet have moments or a feeling where all of a sudden they're gravitating to someone towards the same sex in a romantic or sexual way. And usually when a person experiences same-sex attraction, it's very confusing. It's very, because this doesn't seem, quote, normal to them. And so usually they'll keep it to themselves, but it's a very confusing stage, same-sex attraction. Secondly is orientation, where this is when a person doesn't just experience this once in a while, but they always experience same-sex attraction. They're always drawn to somebody from the same sex in a romantic way. And usually when this happens, this is when it's not just confusing anymore, it becomes a struggle. It becomes a struggle for a person. That leads to the third, the third stage, or the third category, which is identity, gay identity. This is when someone's no longer confused. This is when someone is no longer uh, struggling. This is when someone is now embracing. They're embracing, this is who I am. I realize this is just who I am, and I, gotta, and I should just accept it. And in fact, not just accept it, I should celebrate this. This is who I am. And therefore, there should be nothing wrong with expressing myself in a, in a same-sex relationship because this is me fulfilling who I am as a human being. And so there's attraction, orientation, identity connected, and yet they are a little bit different. And not everybody goes through that. It's different things for each person. The third thing we ought to know to understand this subject is that the idea, this idea that I just talked about, about a gay identity, this is what makes this topic so challenging to talk about these days. You see, same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior, there is nothing new about this. It always existed throughout history in different cultures. However, we in the West, we modern Westerns, 
We have, we're doing something different with this. We are the first society, the first culture to ever make this not just something that we are as a feeling or something that we act upon. It has now become who we are. We are the first culture ever in history to make this an identity. Mark Yarhouse, he's a psychologist and counselor. He says it like this, I quote, although homosexual behavior has been practiced in other cultures, we are the first culture in which people refer to themselves this way. To talk about a gay identity is to enter into language that is part of a modern social cultural movement. It is a way of defining oneself by a single attribute and then adopting a set of attitudes and behaviors that correspond with our culture that defines gay. So when we talk about this, we're not just talking about behavior here. We're talking about what a person bases their identity upon. And that's why as Christians, we have to approach this differently. The, the, the ways that churches have done it, it doesn't work well. It, it doesn't, it doesn't be, it's not received well. Phrases like, hate the, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. That doesn't translate well, because to hate the sin is to hate the person now. It's to hate them. Because this is an identity issue. It's not a behavior issue. And at least the last thing we should know about this topic. If this is true, if this is now an identity situation, when we minister to people who are supportive of this, or we minister to people who are experiencing same-sex attraction, it should always be done in the context of a loving, trusting relationship. You can only really, you know, when you talk about the subject, you can only really grasp what this really means to somebody when not from a book, not from a sermon that you listen to even, but when you are sitting down and talking to someone as a human being, a person who is also made in the image of God, and you talk to them and let them know, tell me what you're experiencing. Tell me what this like. I want to know you, and I want to be, I want to have talk about this in a trusting, loving relationship. We should not see this as the evangelistic project or a political movement where we try to win something over, a win over a principle. No, this, is a, this is a people thing. And we are talking and engaging people, and we should respect them as people. And I really, so in other words, when we talk about this with somebody, we shouldn't just talk about this, but hey, do you know, do you know what they do for a living, the person you're talking to? Do you know who, if they have siblings or not? Do you know who their partner is? Do you know who their, who their spouse is? Have you ever met them before? It's in a context of a relationship like that where there are other things you're talking about where we could finally talk about something like this, where we could actually engage in this and not feel like a debate and not feel like something that you're offending each other, but in a loving relationship, we're able to engage in this topic. Because this is too personal to, to go about flippantly. It's far too personal. And we as a church, we need to be aware of how personal this topic is. So to summarize, or to, I guess, almost encourage us, if you're in a situation where God is bringing people into your own life, where again, whether it be coworkers, family members, friends, who are proponents or who are experiencing same-sex attraction, who are supportive of the gay movement, I'd actually encourage you, be blessed. Be encouraged. That's a great situation to be in. They know you're a Christian. They probably know you're a Christian. And you might be the first Christian that they ever get to engage or maybe the only Christian that, you get, that they get to engage. And I would encourage you to engage them in, in the context of friendship. Engage them in the context of relationships. And I promise you when that happens, conversations like this will just naturally arise. It will organically just kind of come up. Now, if it does come up, if this topic does come up with a person who you just know you have a different view of, how should you respond? What should you say? 
As a Christian, how should we respond to this topic when it actually gets broached? That leads to the second point, which is we need to respond faithfully. If someone asked you, so you're a Christian, I know you go to church, you read your Bible, I see you do that during your lunch break, you're a Christian. Well, what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships? What would you do? What, what, if, let's say you had your Bible right there and someone said, hey, you're reading your Bible, what, what does it say about same-sex relationships? Homosexual marriage, what does it say? What, what, what would you turn to? Now, as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about our Bibles. We shouldn't be afraid to go there. But you probably shouldn't start with Leviticus. Probably shouldn't start with Genesis 19, going, well, it is a story in Sodom and Gomorrah. Probably shouldn't go there. And the reason why is because before we talk about passages that address the question of same-sex relationships, homosexuality, we should look first to the passages that talk about sex and marriage. What does the Bible say have to say about marriage and sex before we go, before we go there? Otherwise, it's going to be very confusing. You, you're, it's just going to be bantering. You're not going to really make sense of, the, of what you guys are talking about. My wife and I, we recently had a, a double date with a the, with the friend. And my, my wife and I, when we do go double dates, uh, we enjoy board games. We enjoy playing new board games and card games. And this couple, when they came over, they brought this new card game, and it's this card game called Sushi Go. I don't know if you guys ever played, like, it's, it's really fun. This card game called Sushi Go. It's pretty much like, it's a basic card game where you collect points, and the cards are like sushi pieces. It's weird, but it's fun. And so, we're playing this, and, you know, we, my wife and I, we've never played this game before. And so, obviously, they need to teach us. Now, imagine if when they taught us, they said, okay, this is Sushi Go. This is how you play, right? You can't have more than eight. You can't have eight cards in your hand. You can't have eight cards, all right? And when you have the wasabi card, you can never combine it with the salmon card. Got it? Okay, let's play. Now, if I heard that, first of all, I'll say this game doesn't sound very fun. You're telling me what I can't do. And secondly, I'm just confused. Like, I can't have eight cards? Well, how many cards can I have? Or what's the wasabi card? What's the sushi? I don't even know what those are. But if he instead told me, oh, you're only, you draw a card every hand and you're only allowed to have seven cards all the time, I'd be like, oh, okay. Or if he said, oh, you know what the wasabi card is? It charges up all these other cards, but it, it makes this, this card doesn't work, it just doesn't, it charges up and it doesn't really work that well. I'd be like, oh, okay. In other words, he, if the person helps me understand how the, ga- the game was designed, the person helped me understand, oh, this is how the game is actually played, then I'll understand why I can't do certain things. I'll understand the bound- why there are certain boundaries if this is the game, that's the way the game is designed. Now, I know marriage is no game. It, marriage is not a game by any means. But there is a design to it. There is a purpose to it. As Christians, that's something that we believe. And we need to, before engaging in any type of conversation about what the Bible says about same-sex relationships, we need to know what the Bible says about, the, about marriage and the design of it. In fact, this is what Jesus does. Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 that there is a design that was originally intended for marriage. And he goes back to the very beginning in Matthew 19, quoting from Genesis 1 and 2. And he tells us how marriage was originally intended. And he says a couple of things to explain this. He says to us, you know, back in the beginning, Back when marriage was first created, the, do you realize the first human beings, Jesus says, that God created, that God chose to design, for some reason he made them two unique genders. The first human beings were male and female, each uniquely reflecting the image of God. 
That's why in verse four he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, he made them male and female? And then what Jesus goes on to say is that based on this design, and now he's talking Genesis two, based on the fact that there is a male and female, out of that context, God created this relationship called marriage. In verse five, key word, therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. There's male and female, therefore, a new relationship is born that we call marriage that is different and outside the family, nuclear family. And Jesus goes on to say one last thing. When these two unique genders come together, they form this unique union that only these two genders are able to form. And that is what he calls uh, one flesh. One flesh. Verse six. They are no longer two, but they are now one flesh. You see, it's important for us as Christians to know that Jesus teaches us that the union between male and female, it is unique because of what it produces. It is unique because it produces this union called one flesh. See, Christians get misunderstood here oftentimes. Christians are not saying that same-sex couples cannot be in love. Oh, for sure, of course you can. Any two human beings could be in love. Nor are Christians saying that same-sex couples, they can't be in a, in a loving, committed relationship. Of course they can. In fact, there are a lot of same-sex relationships and couples that have, are far more loving and far more committed than any, than any straight couple. Far more. But the issue is not the strength, it's not the strength of the feelings involved in a relationship. It's the kind of union that is being produced. That's, the, that's what Jesus is highlighting here. And it's the only way a one flesh union is able to be produced is if, is if the two different genders come together, two genders that are totally different and yet being united to make something new, something one. It's like when you get hydrogen and you get oxygen, two totally different elements, but when they come together, it's not just hydrogen, oxygen, just being together, they produce some, a new element, water, H2O. That's what Jesus is basically saying is happening when the genders come together. And when we keep reading the rest of the Bible, when we keep reading through the story of Scripture, we understand a bit more clearly why it seems like God designed marriage to be this way. In Ephesians 5, we learn that marriage is actually a parable of a greater marriage. It's a parable of something of a greater reality uh, between two unique parties coming together, Christ and the church, totally different from one, one another, and yet coming together to form a new union. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 19, we see this greater marriage become a reality where the, 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 the wedding banquet of the lamb and his bride, again, two complete, distinct beings coming together in union with one another. So to summarize, marriage, it seems like what Jesus is teaching us, it's designed based on two unique genders that are coming uniquely together to form a unique union. And this design it's supposed to point us constantly to this greater union, this greater marriage that's there between two unique parties coming together. There's a woman, her name is Eve Tushnet. She wrote this article called, I'm gay, but I'm not switching to a church that supports gay marriage. And she's, she's, she's Catholic and she says, her, her, her motto, is, it's, it's, it's an interesting motto, she says, I really love being Catholic and I really love being gay. But 
She says, but I'm not gonna go to a church that supports gay marriage. And this is what she says. She says, regardless of how literally you wanna take the creation narratives, the Bible sets apart sexual difference as a uniquely profound form of difference. Marriage as a union of man and woman, it represents a communion with the other in a way which makes it especially a powerful image for the way we can commune with God who remains the other. She pretty much is echoing what Jesus is saying, where even though she identifies herself, I, I'm, I'm gay and I believe in God, but I can't deny the fact that marriage, this relationship, is supposed to represent and point to the otherness of who God is compared to who we are. And so that's why it's only in this context that when we find passages, very few passages, by the way, if we ask what does the Bible say about homosexuality, not much. It only comes up six times explicitly. But all six times when it does come up, for some reason it's always spoken about negatively. And again, it's not because same-sex relationships can't be committed or happy or loving, but it's because same-sex relationships, it doesn't produce the one flesh union, nor does it prepare us for the greater one union that we're gonna have with Christ. And this is why it's concerning, or it should be concerning to us, when, when there are Christians who try to profess that this is not the case. When there are Christians who, try to, who argue saying, well, I don't know about that, or I'm, not, I'm a Christian, but I don't agree with that. Or It's concerning if a Christian says, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, but I don't, I don't like that part. That, I don't know if I really agree with that. My response, my, it should, it's concerning because it, is Jesus, does Jesus have say over our view of marriage? Does Jesus have say over how we view relationships? Is he really Lord over our lives? If we say, no, you can't touch this, then we have to really go back to, well, where, how do I view Jesus in my life? And we have to take a step back and have a different conversation. It's concerning when people tell us that, well, I'm a Christian, but you know, that's just your interpretation of the text. That's, that's the way you interpret it. I have a different interpretation. Let me just tell you, this is not my interpretation of the text. This has actually been the interpretation of the text for the past 2,000 years by the church. And not just by CCSE or just by Presbyterians or not just by Protestants, but every branch of every church, they all, they're so, all, every single branch, Roman Catholic, Episcopalian, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, Anglican, they, are, they disagree on everything you could think of. They all disagree on so many things and yet on here, they're all in agreement for the past 2,000 years saying this is exactly what it's saying. And we should be concerned when as churches, we're pushing, we're, we're pushing for an affirmation saying this is okay, God, God is fine with this, this is marriage. We should be concerned when the, church, when the only churches pushing for that are Western churches. When it's only modern Western churches that are pushing for this. At the exact same time when modern Western culture is pushing for this. The church is not meant to be an echo to the culture. It's not meant to be a church that follows the trends of the culture. But it stands in contrast to the culture as shining as a light to the culture. And so it should be concerning when we look just like the culture. It should be concerning. Now we may not like or agree with what Jesus teaches about this issue. But I would argue as Christians, it's hard to deny it. It's hard to really squirm around it. And so if this is what Christians believe, as the Bible is saying, well, how do we communicate this? How do we minister to people believing this? Let me offer a couple of ways. And this leads to my third point, ministering graciously. 
We need to, again, this is, uh, we live in a different time. We need to be, we need to make sure we're sensitive. It's not just, oh, this is the truth. We have to, how do we express the truth? How do we share the truth? We gotta share it like Christ shares it with us, graciously, so graciously, meeting us where we're at in a gracious way. And let me suggest four ways of how we can minister graciously. First is when we minister to people talking about this, we need to be humble, so humble. Examine your heart. I'm talking now to the, the, the churchy people here. Some of you, you grew up in the church. You, you grew up going, yeah, this, I, that's what I believe. That's what, of course. Well, let me ask you a question. What is your attitude towards the gay community? Why do you disagree with the gay community on their view of marriage? Is it really because of what the Bible says? Or is it because you don't really like the idea of same-sex attraction? Is it really because the picture of marriage in the Bible is so beautiful to you and you want to maintain that? Or is it because the idea of gay marriage is uncomfortable to you? Do you really want to be friends with people in the LGBTQ community? Or do you prefer to keep your distance? Maybe write a blog about it. Maybe speak from afar. Do you prefer to keep your distance? You see, before thinking about engaging the LGBTQ community, and thinking they need the gospel, we need to remember our personal need for the gospel. All of us have broken desires. All of us are attracted to things that we should not be attracted to. And all of us are on a journey of letting Jesus redirect our lives, setting us straight, having us walk a path that is towards him. And we need to remember this when we minister to anybody. Sam Alberry, he's a, he's a pastor who experienced the same-sex attraction. I love what he, he says it like this. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspiration, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. In other words, if you look at this uh, community going, you really need the gospel. This is going to be really hard for you, but let me help you. We don't get the gospel it's hard for all of us if we grasp it. We all have brokenness in our own hearts and we all need to radically change in light of the gospel. We need to be humble when we minister to people. Second though, we need to be courageous. Ministering graciously means being courageous. Culture tells us if we minister to the LGBT community, we have two options, two options in how we respond. You either affirm or you hate. You're either someone who's for it or you're a bigot. You're either someone who thinks this is awesome or you're someone who's prejudiced. The narrative, in other words, is if you care about me and you want to be my friend, then you have to agree with my choices. Otherwise we, otherwise, we can't really be friends. That's the narrative that I think a lot of us hear that kind of paralyzes us. Now, the problem with this is that if you've experienced relationships enough, you'll realize that mature relationships don't work this way. Love and disagreement, it can coexist and still be a friendship. Because if not, then that means our parents don't love us. I mean, our parents, we know our parents love us. And yet, they share their opinions far too often with us. They let us know all the time that they disagree with our choices. They let us know all the time they disagree with what we're doing. And yet, we know they love us. They can coexist. In fact, if you say they can't coexist, that you can't love unless you agree, that means Jesus can't love. Because if you think about what Jesus does, he disagrees with us all the time. <laughs> Jesus has a lot to say about our lives, and yet we know that with Jesus, he is love. 
Therefore, we must be courageous and not accept that cultural narrative that these two, disagreement and love, cannot coexist. They can. They can. Third, we need to be compassionate. When we minister to people, we need to be very compassionate. I want you to think about this. If you're in a small group, or if, you're, uh, if you have a, a friend who lets you know, go, hey, I need to talk to you. And they go, I know you're a Christian. I know this is a church, but I've been experiencing same-sex attraction. I've been feeling... I've been experiencing this for a while, and I don't know what to do. How would you respond? How would you respond to your small group member, to your community group member, to your friend, your family member? I'll tell you how you should not respond. Not awkwardly quiet, where it's like, okay, next. That's so disheartening for someone. Not anger. How could you? I didn't raise you that way. What, you go to, you go to our church? Not anger. Not, thank you for sharing, and you never bring it up again. And <laughs> it just becomes this background noise. Not that, please. And not, well, let me turn to you, Matthew 19. Not that, please. <laughs> that should not be our first response. Instead, let me encourage us to do a couple of things. If someone ever shares with us, hey, I'm experiencing this, first of all, we need to thank them for sharing with us. We should thank them. It's a very personal thing for someone to let you know what they're experiencing. And something that personal you must be someone trustworthy and special to them. We should thank them for trusting us so much that they're willing to divulge that information with us. Second, we should assure them. We should let them know, hey, this doesn't change our relationship. This is not, we are still bros. We are still homies. I'm still going to hang out with you. We're still going to play Xbox. Don't you? Because that's the fear. The fear is to share where you can think of them. Let them know it's, we're totally fine. Listen to them. Ask them questions. You don't talk, have them talk. Tell me, what, what are you feeling? When did this start? Is this, is this just an attraction? Does it feel like an, like what, what's, what's kind of going on? Hear their story and figure out where they're coming from. Pray for them. Ask the, Lord to, ask, ask the Lord to make sure that he is there with them. They would know that the Lord is walking with them during the season. And follow up with them. Don't let this go away. Ask them every once in a while, hey, how's that, how, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago, how's that going? But don't only talk about that. Don't let that be the only thing you talk about, but don't forget to check up on that if they share. It is a very loving and personal thing when someone shares with you what they're going through, and we need to be loving and personal in response back. And lastly, we need to do this collectively. We need to do this together. One of the main struggles I hear people experience, I hear people who experience same-sex attraction, what they experience is loneliness. A lot of people are lonely. It's tough enough to have these feelings or these emotions that are confusing, but it's even more difficult when you can't talk to anybody, when you can't let people know these struggles. And that's why a lot of people who experience same-sex attraction, they find refuge in the LGBT, commu LGBT community, that they are able to be free and share and talk a lot. But the Bible says that the church is meant to be the household of God. The church is meant to be a place, a, place, a tower of refuge. And so we as a church, we need to make sure that for anybody who walks into our doors, they can find community here. And therefore, churches, we need to make this easy to talk about. We need to create a culture where this is something that a member in our church is able to talk about it. As a church, we need to make sure this topic is safe to talk about. We need to get rid of any type of anti-gay language, any type of social media that says anything that's remotely anti-gay. How will someone feel comfortable sharing in the church their struggles if they see on your Facebook post, that's gay, that's so gay, in a derogatory way? No one's going to feel safe sharing. 
And we as a church, we have to practically fight a culture like that. And this does not just take the pastor or the leaders, it takes the whole church collectively to be activated in creating this type of space. And we as a church, most especially, we should not say the goal for anybody who's experiencing same-sex attraction is heterosexuality. That should not be the goal. That is not the goal for sanctification for anybody. The goal of sanctification for all is Christ-likeness. All of us are supposed to grow in Christ together as a church, and it does not matter what your sexual orientation is. That does not change the growth in Christ-likeness. And we as a church, we need to make sure we emphasize that. And there's nothing more encouraging than when a church could rally together with people who are struggling with this, linking arms with them, saying, we're going to be there for you. We're going to help you. This is your family that's going to minister to you in this way. And that leads to my last point. We need to share Christ ultimately. You know, when we, um, if you ever engage or minister to people about this subject, we need to be very clear at some point, not the first conversation, but at some conversation, we need to let people know that we don't follow what we follow or believe what we believe because we're following tradition, because we're following uh, principles and we just like these principles. Now, we as Christians, we, be- we believe what we believe about sex and marriage, not because of tradition, not because of principles, but because we follow a person. We follow a person named Jesus Christ. You see, when you follow anybody, when you make a commitment to anybody, to anything, there's always, and it's something that's really important, there's always going to be a cost and a blessing to whatever it is you're following, whatever it is you're committing to. And usually the greater the blessing, the greater the cost it is. I once, when I was a bachelor, I owned two cats in an apartment. Really weird. I just was, I had a cat stage. I owned two cats in my apartment. They were my cats. And, uh, or actually my roommates and I, it was our cats. And um, they weren't very costly to me. If you ever owned a cat, you don't have to do much. You just give them food and that's it. They don't want you to pet them. They don't want you to walk them. They don't want you to play with them. They just want you to give them food and let them rub against your leg. That's all. Very low cost. Very low. No time. Nothing. And I got it for free. So it's very, no cost at all. Very low blessing. (laughs) Didn't do much for me. Whenever I try to play with it, it just runs away. Very low blessing. It was, the blessing was as, it really it matched the cost of the cat, the blessing. It was this low. I don't have those two cats anymore. I have two kids now. <laughs> now, I've never had something cost me so much in my life. Not financially, uh, with time, emotionally. It's the most costly, it's humanly speaking, the most costly thing ever. I never experienced as much of a blessing as I have with my kids. Great blessing. Never experienced that before. Jesus tells us if we choose to follow him, there is going to be a great cost. It's going to be a great cost. It's the greatest cost that you'll ever have to pay. What is the cost to following Jesus? The cost is you. It's you. Not that's a strange thing. Like, what about me? you as a person? See, Jesus tells us, if you follow him, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. Mark 8 tells us, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, but who loses his life for my sake will save it. 
When we think about denying ourselves, we tend to think, oh, okay, deny myself. Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to watch TV anymore. Or, oh, I'm not going to watch, uh, I'm not going to go on my phone anymore. That's kind of like this religious way we've translated denying ourselves. But in reality, what denying yourself means is that you are giving up the very sense of who you think you are. That's what denying yourself is. To illustrate that, Jesus uses the most graphic illustration he could think of, the cross. When you carry a Roman cross in the first century, your life is forfeit. Your life is gone. That's what the cross means. And so when Jesus says, come follow me by denying yourself and take up your cross, what he's telling us is you must give up everything to follow me. Again, Sal Malberry, he says, denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life is now forfeit. It is laying down your life for the very reason that your life, it turns out, is not yours at all, belongs to Jesus. That's the cost of following him. Now, if that's the cost, why on earth would anybody follow him? Why would anybody choose to follow Jesus when this is the cost of following him? And the reason why is even though this is the greatest cost you'll ever experience, this is also the greatest blessing you ever experience as well. So to follow Jesus is a great blessing. And what is that blessing? You get Jesus. You get Jesus. Why is Jesus someone worth a great, someone worth your life sacrificing over? Why is he such a blessing that you're willing to sacrifice your identity of who you are? The reason is because Jesus tells us that for those of us who are willing to lose our life to have them, he will now save it. The life you thought you were living, that is not real life. You will have life with me. A real life that I, that you are made for is a life with Jesus. You see, our culture tells us that the life you're supposed to live, it's, based, it's supposed to be built upon the sexual identity that you have. The culture tells us that if you are experiencing same-sex attraction, you should embrace this because this is who you are. This is your identity. And therefore, to be fully human, to be fully whole, you need to, li- you need to express yourself. You need to engage in relationships like that because that's what it means to be human because that's who you are. That's what the culture tells us. But Jesus tells us that Jesus actually goes right against that goes right against that, letting us know that that is not what our identity is based upon. That our sexuality is a part of who we are. It's not who we are, though. It's a feature, but it's not the essence of who I am. Because if that's true, that means Jesus, something was really, something was really dysfunctional about him. He never had sex. He remained celibate his whole life. He never got married. And yet we know that he is the most fully human being that ever walked in the face of this earth. There is something else that we were meant to become. There is something else our identity was made to be based upon. And Jesus says that something else is a relationship with him. You see, whether you're gay gay or you're straight, there is no earthly relationship that will satisfy you or make you whole like Jesus does. And if you think there is someone out there that can make you whole or satisfy you, someone else besides Jesus, I hope you never meet that person because you'll be very disappointed. You end up very disappointed about a person and that person is going to get crushed by you. You're going to crush them with your expectations. 
Only Jesus is able to fill the longings that we are aching for. And a life is, with Jesus as your, is far better of an identity to be based upon than a life where your identity is based upon anything else. This is something that the gay community does not just need to hear. We all need to hear this message. We all need this for our own lives. As great as marriage and kids are, Jesus is even greater. And when you know Jesus and you actually walk with him and follow him, you will discover slowly but surely he's far more beautiful than anything else in all of creation. And keep walking with him, you will discover something amazing. He looks at you and he thinks you're far more beautiful than anything else in all of creation as well. Psalm 8.3 says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. That's how God views us. That's how Jesus views us. Follow him, and it will be the, even though it will be the greatest cost, it will be the greatest blessing that a person could experience. Let's pray together.